You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and uh, we are going to reconnect with somebody that we had the opportunity to have a wonderful chat with a few years ago. And the last time we talked with Michaela Foster March, it was about her music. But today we're going to talk to her about her writing. Because Michaela grew up with her brother, Frankie. And they grew up as twins in Glasgow and Scotland in the 60s. They were born, despite being twins, they were born weeks apart. Michaela was white, Frankie was black. And they were an unusual sight in their dual pram. And I can imagine the prams with the big wheels that there were back then being pushed along the street and the two of them in it. But there's a story that has resulted in Michaela writing a memoir called Star Child. And I'm not going to steal Michaela's thunder, but Michaela, thanks a million for coming along for a a chat. And I can only say when I I read through um, what this story is about, it is so moving and so wonderful. Um, Tell us a little about Frankie. Oh, thanks, Austin. Thanks for having me on the show again. It's a pleasure. Nice to connect with you once again. Um, the the memoir it's a kind of it's a very candid memoir, I guess, about growing up with a black adopted brother who was my twin. For you know, we called each other twins, and we, as you just said, were pushed around Glasgow in the late 60s in a, in a twin pram, which, I mean, transracial adoption was literally unheard of in those days. So it was a very unusual sight. There was a lot of curiosity about it. Um, at that point, I don't think my family felt um, any racial tension. It was mainly just a, a curiosity. But I should probably point out that my parents didn't set out to adopt a black child They'd actually set out to adopt a hard-to-place child, meaning a child who perhaps had a disability or maybe was an older child because at at that time adoption was often cloaked in secrecy and people were often looking for babies. So older children were often left behind and also children with disabilities. So my parents had basically just said they would accept a hard-to-place child and then the adoption agency came and said, would you consider a black child because um, he's very hard to place, and he had now he was now 13 months old, and it didn't look like he was going to be um, adopted. And my parents basically said, we don't care about the colour of the child's skin at all, as long as we feel we bond uh, with the child. But if you if you put yourself back to that time, that was at the height of um, the civil rights movement in America. And Martin Luther King had just been assassinated the year that we adopted, my family adopted Frankie. And I would just say this to people, and and, um, it was quite brave of my parents to take that anti-racism stand at at that time. And of course now, what's happening, it's mirroring what happened then. And so people are beginning to realise, you know, the the challenges and, and what they had actually done at that point. But I can't imagine my life not having had Frankie as my brother. It's just he has shaped my life and his death has shaped my life. Um, Obviously, you know, Frankie died very tragically in a house fire at the age of 27. And it was the saddest day of my life. But, um, you know, he's the reason that I ended up in a recording studio. He's the reason I ended up writing. He's the reason I ended up starting the Star Child Charity. 
you know, finding his family in Uganda, just a miraculous story of 18 years after his death, um, being able to find that family. Take some steps back because uh, we don't want to, to miss out on some important facts and details here. First of all, you know, Frankie arrives at 13 months um, growing up. And, you know, we all have these preconceived notions, but um, Frankie, when he would have opened his mouth as he got older, had, would have had a lovely, rich Scottish accent. Absolutely. That, <laughs> yeah. that, that yeah. would have caused some heads to turn at times. It certainly did. It certainly did. Um, you know, and, and as we got older, we would still say to people, you know, people thought we were dating and we would still say, no, we're twins. And people would like laugh and be like, you know, what on earth, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, we carried that on all through our life. And of course, yeah, he had this Scottish accent and people would look at us like, mm, are they really like, what's the story here? You know? <laughs> um, so, um, but um, it was good fun. He was a character. He was so charismatic and very handsome and uh, didn't have a chip in his shoulder at all, which was great and really helped get him through um, any racial tension that was out there. So you so, mentioned that he was your inspiration to go into the studio, but before you ever went to the studio, you would have had to have had a voice. Um, and the question I want to go to is, did Frankie have a voice? Did you sing? Did. did you sing together? No, we didn't, but we danced together. He he was a terrific dancer. Right. Um, he didn't he didn't sing very much, um, but he enjoyed my singing. But I was very private about my songwriting, and you know I didn't have the confidence at that time. And so what happened was that I had I had wanted to record a song that I'd written when Frankie died for the family, and. Um, I was trying to do a home recording and it just was didn't sound very good and I decided to get the courage up to go into the studio to record the song for the family. And when I did go into the studio and record the song, they basically asked if I had any more songs because I'd recorded the song in a few minutes and I'd booked three hours of studio time. So the studio um, then called me back a few weeks later saying, these songs that you've written, I, you know, I think, maybe you should come in and discuss a contract with us we think you're really good and you know to cut a long story short within a year I ended up in Toronto and working with a Juno award winning producer and, and have subsequently I recorded three albums but it was Frankie's song that I'd written for the family that propelled me into the studio so um, let's go let's go back again because again I, I, I want to pull you back here and there and um, Sport is very an important part of life, and again, particularly in Scotland, um, soccer is a big part. Was did Frankie play soccer? Oh, he wanted to be a football player. Yeah, he just loved it. He was always out on the football pitch. Any opportunity that he got, um, unfortunately, he had an accident playing football and broke his leg. Um, you know, which I really think, um, you know, any chances of him playing professionally. Um, put a damper on that. He did have problems with his leg, but um, he he was a good player, and and you know everybody loved him on on their team, and he just loved it. That's where he was happiest out in the football pitch with his Rangers Rangers outfit. On. <laughs> he loved Rangers, and he was buried with his Rangers football scarf on. And you see, to me, they're the important parts of how close uh, an integration becomes in in your with your twin. That yeah. um, despite the, that Frankie was originally uh, heritage-wise from Uganda, 
that he was Scottish through and through. Yeah, he he would have been like me. He would have been a fish out of water when he got to Uganda, you know, because he, for all intents and purposes, was Scottish. You know, yeah. he'd never really, um, he'd not set foot there. He had been left in Scotland. So many people thought that, you know, mum and dad had gone over in some mission or something to Africa and brought back Frankie. And and uh, nothing could have been further from the truth. As I say, he had been left here. Um, and we didn't know anything about his background. It was many years later that I uncovered the, the truth and was, was able to, and, and that is in the book, you know, that whole, you know, it's part detective story, really, t- trying to find that family after Frankie's death. When Frankie was younger, my parents had sat us down and had said, you know, did Frankie want to know anything about his biological family? And he was quite defensive and, no, I don't want to know anything about them. They didn't want to know me. I don't want to know them. I'm Scottish and um, was quite defensive. And I think he maybe felt, you know, maybe if we found the family, he might end up having to go back to Africa and a country that he couldn't identify with. And we were his family. He loved us, and and I think he was scared. But as he got older, um, just shortly before he died, he became interested um, in finding out about his biological family. And I think had he lived, we would have probably gone together to Uganda on that pilgrimage. But um, I felt I wanted to honour Frankie's memory and do that in memory of Frankie. It wasn't easy. It was an extremely difficult journey, as as, as I point out in, in the book. But miraculous, nothing short of a miracle to have actually, in a country of 43 million people, found his family. And that was, yeah, that's where we want to go, because that is the wonderful part of this story, is that when you started your research, which led you uh, around Scotland, brought you to the north of Ireland. It did, yeah. It did. And what was the north of Ireland, the connection there? Well, Frankie was conceived in Belfast, um, and his mum, in 1962, when Uganda got independence, a lot of the really bright students were sent to the UK um, and, and Belfast. They were sent um, to, um, you know, the UK to study, and um, the, the government, the Uganda government, paid for that education for them. And they were told that they could, you know, the, the, the women, you can't get nothing, you know, all the rules and regulations of what they could and couldn't do. And obviously they were getting a very big opportunity and the government was paying for it. So unfortunately, or fortunately really, Janet fell pregnant and um, obviously was not, did not feel she could keep the child and came over to Scotland in secrecy in the, the, during the summer break and had Frankie in secrecy in Scotland and then returned to her studies, so nobody knew. So we uncovered all this much later on. We had thought Frankie was actually, um, the mother was here in Scotland, but she actually was in Belfast studying um, to be a teacher. She was doing some teacher training there. And um, so um, when I got the finally got the birth certificate, that's when I discovered that there was a Belfast connection and made my my journey, pilgrimage over to Belfast to see if I could get any more information. And when you got to Belfast and even when you got to Uganda, uh, the amount of, um, there's no such thing as a coincidence, but the amount of serendipitous events that led you to making connections was phenomenal. 
absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. And there had been so many delays and setbacks with me going to Uganda that I was beginning to think that somebody <laughs> didn't want me to go. You know, I was thinking, you know, the universe, God, whatever, nobody didn't want me to go. But I was, I was persistent with it, and I really did believe that I, I had this, I had to do this in my life, and I would do it. Um, but when I got there, it was like I was a puppet. It was as if that trip had been planned my entire life. Like you say, the synchronicity, the serendipity unbelievable and and um you know all of that is is in the book you know that the people that I kept meeting that led me to to find the family was just absolutely incredible um the law of probability said I should never have found them but I did and I was obviously meant to find them indeed and of course that is what this memoir is relating it's it's giving the background the journey to find and then as a result of finding how you set up and got involved in the foundation. Yeah, well, I, I overnight inherited three Ugandan brothers. <laughs> so Frankie had three brothers. Um, and uh, so Frankie, um, one of them is called Frank and looks very like Frankie. And that was such an emotional experience to actually be sitting there with Frankie's brother. It was surreal. And to look at him and, and see Frankie in his face and, you know, to have that, that you know, connection, the biological connection and, and me feeling so biologically connected to Frankie, despite the colour difference, you know, for me, he definitely was my twin. And to be sitting there with, with Frank, incredible. And then David um, and then Paul, who lives in the States, in Minnesota, so it's just been an incredible journey. And when I met the brothers and then I felt so overwhelmed as well, not just emotionally by meeting them, but by the poverty and by what I'd witnessed and the, the amount of orphans that were in Uganda, any one of which I felt could have been Frankie, I then decided to set up the charity Star Child and came back to Scotland, not knowing how I was going to go about doing this, but... Um, you know, certainly with that dream in my heart of, of being able to go back there and do something to, to help the situation. And I had a genuine tie to, to Uganda and a desire to go back and get to know the family more. So we managed to, again, quite miraculously, to set up the charity. We got charitable status and have subsequently went on to build a school for creative arts in Uganda. And we have many other projects, the women's projects. Um, we mainly work with vulnerable women and children. And we're now about to build a sunflower sanctuary for children and families affected by autism and disabilities in memory of my partner, Ronnie. He was a very big part of the charity. And did you encounter many challenges in trying to deliver on your dream in Uganda because sometimes what we hear is that um, efforts to work within a different country can often be hampered by either the establishment in the country or a variety of other things. Yeah. Did you find that doors open for you or did you have mountains to climb? Mountains to climb. It's a very tricky country to navigate, and um, yeah, I had my head in my hands a lot of the time. You would have thought that they would have wanted us to come and do this, but no, they make life very, very difficult, and it's a real um, learning experience. And uh, you know, 
I, I had to really keep my wits about me. And, um, you know, it's very easy. I, I saw a lot of projects there that have been started and left behind. Lots of people with good intention. It's, it's very, very difficult to, to organize something like that. And I do speak about that journey as well in the book and some of the challenges that I came up against and the bureaucratic red tape. And I'm also not wanting to deal with a woman, a white woman. So yeah, I had to be, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather forceful at times <laughs> got a few enemies along the way I'm sure but um, yeah it, it was challenging on every level they, you know we, we were given quotes of £100,000 to build a school that we built for £16,000 so we're a very I think um, safe charity we do our homework and we negotiate hard and I think also having the family there and having the brothers there, that took a, a while to develop a relationship with them because, to be honest, they saw me as, you know, the white Mzungo, uh rich sister who was going to provide for them all and, and give them all a, a cushy life. And, you know, they think that, uh, you know, there's a pot of gold over at this side of the world. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I'm more of the struggling artist combat. You know, that's what I am. I'm not earning a load of money. And, and uh, I think they eventually learned that, you know, I was not going to be dishing out a whole lot of money. But I, I think at first when I came along, that, that was the kind of attitude was, oh, we've got a rich sister and white sister who's going to provide for us. So there was a lot of challenges there. And um, it was quite that was emotional as well to deal with. Uh, and now we have a much better understanding of each other, which is good. But it's not a badness if you just think about it from their point of view. And, you know, it, it's just that they, there is so much poverty there. And uh, relatively speaking, we are wealthy. Michaela, one of the things that's very difficult for us on this side of the world <clears throat> is to in any way appreciate or imagine what it must be like to be so different and to be in the minority. So when you went to Uganda as the white woman, you were the difference. How did that feel? Or did it in any way help give you a, an insight into what a black person must experience in our culture? I don't know if it gave me that. Um because most people were looking at me, I think, as opposed to give them something. Okay. You know, I was the, the like I say, this person who they would presume had money and wealth. So, you know, and also I was coming there to kind of help them in a situation. So they were looking at me to kind of, um, I, I, not, not, I hate that white saviour thing. I mean, it drives me absolutely mad and, and um you know, but that's that's something negative that has been built around white people going to Africa. So there's a, there is that kind of attitude towards you when you're there, which I don't like, but it's there, it exists. So it's quite different from the racism and prejudice that Frankie came up against. Um, but, I mean, I certainly, I remember my mum talking about the level of curiosity that people had that used to, annoyer that people wanted to pick Frankie out of the pram and cuddle him and touch his hair and his skin and they were just curious they weren't being bad but they'd never seen a black person before mm -hmm. so when I go to Uganda the kids are like that with me 
they all want to touch me, they want to brush my hair, they want to stroke my skin, they try and rub my freckles off, they put their finger in their mouth and then they, you know, try and rub my freckles because they've never seen freckles before and they don't understand them and they, my hair is really soft, theirs is wiry. So they want to get a brush, and, you know, they, they want to, they've never seen brushes, they use Afro combs. So the, the girls will stand and just brush my hair and try and do different designs and things with it. And it's it's all very nice. It's it's you know you f- start to feel a bit exotic. And I know that Frankie, you know, he used to kind of play on that, you know, sometimes because people because he was different, you know. Um, there weren't an awful lot of black people in Scotland at that time. So so to that extent, I understand what Frankie and my mum were kind of feeling, um, because that. But it's more. Um, I don't see it as a as a negative. So I don't know that I would quite get that same feeling that Frankie would get. Well, Michaela, we're going to have to uh, wrap up because we are running out of time. And uh, it is the uh, Star Child charity that uh, you have founded. And I do want to mention that you were a finalist for Scots Woman of the Year uh, by the Evening Times. And you have received a Prime Minister's Award for the work you've done in Uganda. So the important questions at this stage are, where can somebody get their hands on the book? Probably the easiest is, is Amazon, because um, it's worldwide. You can reach it, or any fine bookstore. But if it's anything like here, we're about to go into lockdown. So <laughs> we, we lock down tomorrow again. So I would suggest probably um, Amazon or anywhere you order books from online, you would be able to, to get the, the book Star Child and and you can please visit our website, starchildcharity.org or michaelaonline.com, Michaela Foster Marsh, or join me on Facebook. And you can find your music there also, which is well worth, well worth listening to because you have a beautiful Thank voice. Beautiful Thank voice and beautiful so songs. Much. Thank you so much, Austin. Michaela, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Thank you.